Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. Um, Bible time. Let me reintroduce us to what's going on. Uh, I know some of you have just gotten here in the last few weeks, some just in the last few months, uh, but even if you were with us over the summer when we started this series, Shining in Babylon, a series going line by line through the book of Daniel, um, about a thousand or seven bazillion media messages a day have gone into your head every single day since August, right? Your own life, the stuff you care deeply about, crisis, high moments, low moments, all this stuff has happened since August so there's no, and I hardly remember what I preached. So I am not putting any pressure on any of you to just pick up where we left off. Oh yeah, I remember everything Greg said. It was amazing, best sermons ever. No, 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 no. So allow me to refresh the beauty of the book and the context that is Daniel, and then we'll spend the next five weeks finishing this book before we start Lent. Um, as I said earlier, and this is maybe what makes it so tragic that um, the 21st century American church has not spent a whole lot of time in the Old Testament. A book that gives hope in the midst of darkness, and that seems to be like the overarching narrative, the overarching theme of Daniel. Um, man, like how out of touch do we have to be to not appreciate that? Just, I look around me and I don't see any darkness. I don't see any suffering. Come on now. <laughs> Let's not be silly. Uh, the people of God, and we're going to find out really clearly next week during Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, the people of God had not simply been saved and rescued out of Egypt and given God's law and a new covenant. Here's what your, that's fancy Bible language. It means here's what your relationship to God's going to be now. That's what covenant means. Here's what your relationship to God is going to be now. And we, the people of God, did a horrible job keeping our end of the deal, Right? So when in the New Testament, when the New Testament writers say, though everyone else is a liar, God is faithful and God is true, that has context. We betrayed God's law over and over and over, some seasons of repentance, and then lapsed back into worshiping every imaginable false god we could get our paws on. And that is kind of the context of Daniel. Daniel had said in the, sorry, God had said in the Mosaic law, look, I am not above you know, using really drastic punishment for my people because I care about holiness in your life. This is how you're going to find life and joy. When we only know a religious jerk, who, Ned Flanders, who lives next door, and all he wants is a certain behavior out of us, we don't understand God's heart for holiness. When God wants holiness in your life, that's saying he wants sunshine and water and nutrients for a plant. Okay. God wants holiness for us because that is how life is lived with the greatest imaginable joy and flourishing. And so he said, listen, I will cosmic time out my people if they keep rebelling, including what manifested as a 70-year-long time out carried away in captivity by their enemies. So they're off in Babylon. You know, this, this uh, didn't make a lot of sense, if, if I can be honest. I grew up in church, and the story of Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it never made any sense. Why are they in Babylon? I thought Israel's over here, and on the little map next to the felt board in my Sunday school class, Babylon's all the way over here. What's going on? What's going on is 
God reserves the right to put his people on time out. And not just reserves the right, he promised in advance, if you continue in your rebellion, I love you too much because the wages of sin is death, Paul tells us in Romans 3. I love my children so much I will not let them continually choose death. I just gave you a synopsis of the law right there. My children are going to choose death, but I love them too much to let them stay there. I'm going to write my law on their hearts one day. So Daniel, the first half of Daniel, are these really cool stories of faithfulness of God's people in a dark place where they have no support system, no temple. It's not cool to be a Christian anymore. I know you guys don't know what that feels like. But the back half, we already preached that over summer, the back half that we're in now is what some people affectionately call the scary part. Weird visions of rams and goats and horns and what is going on. And I'm here to tell you the good news. Are you ready? Are you? No. Mike is ready. I can see it in his face. The future belongs to God. How terrifying if you don't know him and love him and trust him. Right? Anybody seen an action movie where the bad guy always seemed to be three steps ahead? That's a scary place to be. Oh, but what if he's the good guy? What if the good guy's always three steps ahead? I'm here to tell you from the book of Daniel, your father loves you and he is a thousand steps ahead. That's what we're going to find out today. I've said to you guys for four and a half years, you and I are trying sometimes in our flesh to beat God at a game of checkers when he's playing chess. King me, and he laughs. So let's read this text together. I'm gonna preach all of chapter eight because it is one vision and one response. It's essentially one story. All of chapter 8. And uh, as a reminder also, I said this over the summer, but it's been a while. These visions are not all after the stories of the first six chapters. The book of Daniel is divided into here's some stories of faithfulness and here's some visions God gave me along the way. They're divided by topic, not by chronology. So this happened back before chapter 5, just in case you care. Okay. During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision following the one that had already appeared to me. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai River, modern-day Iraq, all of this. As I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. The ram butted everything out of his way to the west, to the north, and to the south, and no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased and became very great. While I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. This goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the river, rushing at it in a rage. Time out real quick, if you're new to the Bible. Horns are symbols of authority, so we're talking about nations and kings right now, okay? And the original audience understood this, so it's weird to us, but the people who first heard it, they're like, oh, another nation's going to rise up, and ten horns, ten different leaders, three horns, three different leaders. Um, It was not as confusing to them as it is to us, is what I'm trying to say. Verse 7, 
The goat charged furiously at the ram and struck him, breaking off both his horns. Now the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. The goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. In the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east and toward the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. So time out real quick. This isn't in the sermon, but we need some context. A human leader, when he still talks about reaching to the heavens, there is a human leader who is so arrogant, he's going to declare war on God while he's at it. But this never happens anymore, right? Our, our, our leaders don't make religious statements. They don't put forward bills that totally disregard, disregard the word of God. This never happens anymore, right? So what we've seen before this verse is, is just like human leaders waging war against other human leaders to take their land. I've, I've got more toys by the time I die, I win. All of a sudden, there's this leader who's so arrogant and so evil, he's waging war against God and his people, um, most likely, we'll get to heaven and know for sure, most likely, this is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes after the death of Alexander the Great. Antiochus Epiphanes did stuff to the Jewish people about 150 years before Christ that made Hitler look like a kindergartner. Just evil, evil things, uh, including probably what broke the heart of the Jewish people the most, um, putting, sacrificing a pig in the Jewish temple. Um, an unclean animal. So that's probably what's being spoken of here. But what you need to know is um, when, when we human leaders, when we get arrogant, we don't just wage war against each other, we're waging war against God. We, we want every throne because that's how the flesh works, right? Okay. Challenging, let's read verse 11 again. I don't know where I stopped. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him. Yikes, Right? You tell the church you can't meet anymore, that's an offense against Christ. You're fighting Jesus, not the church. So watch out, Jesus is big. Right, you saw that, commander of heaven's army? Who's that? Not you, yeah, okay. <laughs> the army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion. Holy cow, I didn't put it in the notes, but how awesome that there's an army in heaven that could handle this at any moment. I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. I'm going to my cross and I say, listen, I could call legions of angels to save me right now and I'm not doing it. God is on his throne. So the daily sacrifice was halted and truth was overthrown. AKA, the purpose of the temple was not simply that people could come and sacrifice animals and pray prayers to be heard by God and responded to by God, but they also continued to be taught by the priesthood and by the Levites. You were taught the word of God, not just the sacrificial system. There, there was a teaching ministry of the temple, and all of it was stopped. Uh, the horn succeeded in everything it did. Verse 13. Then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. One of them asked, how long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and heaven's army be trampled on? The other replied, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the temple will be made 
right again. Another historical note. Evenings and mornings is a language that makes a lot of sense to a Jew. It's lost on us. Okay, this is almost certainly not talking about time. It is talking about the morning and evening sacrifices that the temple was doing. If you uh, take the number 2300, that is the exact number of sacrifices that were missed when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple before the Maccabean Revolution uh, 1150 days later. So the exact number of morning and evening sacrifices that were owed to God, that were stopped by one evil ruler, some other guy comes along, rebels against him, and sets up the temple again, God called it, and he called it to the day. The exact number of evening sacrifice, morning and evening sacrifices that would not happen, he's, he's called it to the day, hundreds of years before it happened. This is why this, the title of this sermon is The Future is His. The future is his. This is child's play for him. Okay, verse 15. As I, Daniel, was trying to understand the meaning of this vision, someone who looked like a man stood in front of me, and I heard a human voice calling out from the Ulai River, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of his vision. As Gabriel approached the place where I was standing, I became so terrified that I fell with my face to the ground. Son of man, he said, you must understand that the events you have seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. While he was speaking, I fainted and lay there with my face to the ground, but Gabriel roused me with a touch and helped me to my feet. Then he said, I am here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. The two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between the eye represents the first king of the Greek empire. This is most likely Alexander the Great. The four prominent horns that replace the one large horn show that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but none as great as the first. Some of you uh, may not remember from your day, back in your days in schooling where you poured over Greek history with all adoration, just salivating, oh, give me some ancient Greek history. Alexander the Great not only conquered the world faster than anybody else, to this day, the square miles that he conquered in the speed that he conquered has not been surpassed yet. And he did it over 2,000 years ago. That's crazy. And he's 33 years old and catches some kind of sickness and dies. Dies really young, far from home, no succession plan, falls apart into four kingdoms, none as great as the first, just like God said it would happen. Anyway, verse 23. At the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken, though not by human power. Is that good news? The vision about the 2300 evenings and mornings is true, but none of these things will happen for a long time, so keep this vision a secret. Then I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for several days. Afterward, I got up and performed my duties for the king, but I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. Holy Spirit, would you please teach us Daniel chapter 8 today? God, I ask you to get past my pride. 
where I want to know it all and I want to be right all the time. God, instead, by your spirit, give us humility so that we could be disciples and learners right now. Holy Spirit, I ask you to show us the place where we have found our hope in lesser things instead of in you that the book of Daniel points toward. God, we confess that we oftentimes are looking for hope in money or relationships, <laughs> a bunch of other things, but we confess that God is sin and we return uh, to you. Maybe daily we return to you as our only hope. God, we thank you that the future is yours. We don't even know what's going to happen one second from now. (laughs) And as one theologian said, the future is not something you know, it's a place where you are. We celebrate today, God, that time is a creation of your hand and you use it however you see fit to glorify your name. Help us to trust you more today, Jesus. If nothing else, God, make foundation trust you more by the end of this time. Oh, we want to trust you. Help our unbelief. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. God's people said. Those who enjoy taking notes, write it in your blank or maybe in the margin of your Bible. Three things we're going to share today. Number one, God knows the beginning and end of your toughest seasons. Oh, now you're just preaching to yourself, cancer boy. (laughs) I am preaching to myself and you guys are in the room for it. God knows the beginning and end of your toughest seasons. That's good news, because I don't know three seconds from now in the middle of my tough season, do I? Look again with me at verse 14. The other replied, here's exactly how long these bad things will happen. That's my, that's my translation, right? It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the temple will be made right again. God already knows when the suffering ends. This is why I keep talking about faith and trust. Everything in my flesh doesn't like that. I don't know about you. Yeah, 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 God, you know, you know when it ends, but, but, but I want to know. <laughs> yeah, the problem is the future is his. Right? Guys, did we see how much Daniel was confused, overwhelmed physically and emotionally, overwhelmed with the vision? And in the vision before this in chapter 7? Guys, when God chooses to show us the future, he is still just letting us know, hey guys, I got this, in order to build our faith. He doesn't tell you the future so you can go do something with it. Uh, If you're not a child of the 80s, I'm going to apologize in advance. So, in Back to the Future, the bad guy gets this book that talks about every baseball game, every football game, every horse race for the last 30 years or whatever, but he goes back to 1955 and hands the book to himself 
And so he's able to place bets on every sports event from 1955 to 1985 and always know the winner, and so he's filthy rich. Biff. Biff. And he knew how to biff. Anyway, I just got it detailed. Anyway, future, I think Biff shows us what we would do with it. Right? You give me a godlike power, and I'm going to worship whatever it is I worship. If that's money, I'm going to worship money, right? Uh, it's, it's not going to go well, handing godlike power to a mere mortal. It's not going to go well. God is never taking his power and handing it to the prophets or to the church. Why would a loving God do that? I don't hand my children the, the car keys because I love them. Mom and dad are the ones that will get us safely to preschool and back. But you and I, oh, we want it all. So, not you. I know you would never do this. I did this. I wasted almost two years of my life in high school studying Daniel, studying Revelation. I'm going to be the one to figure it all out. I'm going to be the guy. I'm going to know exactly when Jesus returns to the minute during the third quarter of the Dallas Niners game back in 2023. That's when he's coming. I was the guy until I was about 16 years old and the Lord rebuked me. I think I've told this story before. I was reading Romans. And I felt the Spirit say to me, Greg, if you spent even a little energy obeying the parts of Scripture that you do understand, maybe you'd get somewhere. Because Romans is a lot more clear than Daniel, right? And I was not devoting any energy pouring into the text that I do know and saying, God, would you please help to make me a worshiper of you. I wasn't. I was up here stuck in my head trying to be the smartest guy. But you see, God loves us, so he doesn't hand us the future. No, no, no. He gives us a little bit of glimpse in order to what? To build our faith. You and I thrive when we trust our Father. It's actually that simple because he's good. He wants, he'll do anything to help us trust him. He'll walk on water to get us to trust him. Do you think the fish were impressed that day? Was he showing off for the fishies? No. He's like, oh man, the 12 of you, you guys will thrive so much better if you learn to trust me. I'm gonna walk on the water. One of you who's open mouth, insert foot, you're gonna ask for an invitation out on the water and I know in advance I'm gonna say yes. I know in advance you're gonna sink when you take your eyes off of me. I know in advance I'm gonna reach out and save you just so you don't get proud in the 30 plus years of ministry I have for you after that. Like, he's a thousand steps ahead of us. And that's good news because he loves us. He's good. He's merciful. He knows the beginning and the end of your toughest season, saint. If you're exploring faith, you're not sure yet what you think of Christianity, same applies to you. He knows the beginning and the end of your toughest season. And God's promise is not that you're not gonna go through the season. His promise is his presence with you if you want it. If you want Jesus to walk with you during those seasons, he wants to be with you. That was for free. So here's the next step for you note takers. Again, if you're not a note taker, I want you to take notes anyway. Write it in the margin of your Bible if you don't have a, um, a bulletin. This is just where we need to take action. 
Run to prayer, God's word, and God's people when sorrow comes. Run, not walk. Run to prayer, God's word, and God's people when the sorrow comes. Not if, but when. Running to prayer is, I'm going to talk to the one whose the future is his. Running to God's word, he might have already told me how I'm supposed to respond in this situation. So we keep this book open, amen? Amen. Keep it open. And I'm going to run to God's people because when I read the book, what I find is a lot of times the Holy Spirit is going to bless and strengthen and encourage me through you. There's a reason disciple groups, we set up the first week, like, hey, we have six different leaders. We have six different roles that we're going to fill. Why? It's all about respecting the spiritual gifts. And I didn't discover, you know, stumble upon that through my awesome theological amazingness I stumbled across it because I was a small groups director at a church where I was trying to have one leader of a group and my wife loves me and loves the Lord enough to go, hey honey, that right there and that right there might not be your strong suit. Right? Who wants an egghead who loves teaching the Bible but forgets every other detail? Like, how is this group going to thrive? We're going to learn lots of big words. Great. But when you respect the spiritual gifts that the sovereign God has given to the saints and you ask them to be in charge of the things that they're good at supernaturally, all of a sudden we're behaving like the church. Just a thought. Run to prayer, run to God's word, and run to God's people when sorrow comes. And and I I love, the, the greatest joy I can feel right now in this moment is that Sometimes I have to preach things to you because I don't feel like we're doing them. And this one, I get to preach it and I feel like you've been doing it all morning. I love that you guys brought your sorrows to me and to each other this morning. The prayer huddle, as you walked in, and in our elder-led prayer time, you guys seem to get it. And for those in the room that don't get it, you are doing, being an excellent model. We pray for each other here. In our family, we pray for each other. In our family, I don't have all the resources, but my father does. Let's go. Second, God can raise up evil leaders and he can remove them too. Hallelujah. I have one honest churchman. <laughs> the problem is that all the Republicans just thought about Democrat leaders and all the Democrats thought about Republican leaders. People. People, people, people. I'll say it again in case you're just writing in your margins. God can raise up evil leaders and he can remove them too. Take a look with me at verse 24. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. Is that a beautiful phrase or what? Somebody could take over half the world and he still didn't get there by his own power. God allowed this to happen. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders, devastate the holy people. He will become a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He'll even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken not by human power. Raised up by God's power, brought down by God's power. 
And we've addressed it before, but let me address it briefly. That puts us immediately in a theological conundrum. Wait, he did all those evil things and God allowed it? Everything God says, if we're willing to read it line by line and not skip over the rough parts, everything God says keeps reiterating, hey guys, you know you unleashed the brokenness in the world when you rebelled against me in the garden, right? I don't like it, it breaks my heart, it's costing my son his life, but you know you unleashed this, right? He gives us free will, he lets us choose, and that means leaders can choose too. They can be godly or they could be evil. We make all kinds of decisions under God's sovereignty, some that are good and some that are evil. Uh, so I want us to think of the image of an artist and clay. Um, before it's put in the oven, the clay is still malleable. Um, does the artist, after he or she makes something, do they have the right to look at it, assess how it's turned out so far? Do they still have the right to unmake it? and make it into something else if they want? Yeah, the power dynamic is incredible. When you're talking about a human being, a human being and a lump of clay. Like where in the Bill of Rights does a lump of clay has an equal voice to the artist? No, so when Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore have their hands on, sorry. Um, the artist does not ever give up creative rights or the rights of ownership at any point. You know why? This is going to hurt your soul and it's going to be good for you. A lump of clay is a lump of clay. Paul even uses this imagery in Romans. You know, the creator, the potter, has every right to make clay into something really uh, dignified in the home and he can use it to do something really menial like be a wastebasket. You know, you know the creator has those rights, Right? And that is a foreign language to you and to me. It's, it's something we need to hear. It's, it's beautiful and it's powerful. Because again, if God is powerful and loving, then him running my life is the best news in the whole world. We are terrified of Jesus being in charge because we don't yet trust him. As soon as you trust him, right? And, and don't think that you don't doubt either. You can trust Jesus and have doubts. Jesus... We're about to drown. Don't you even care? Do something, right? I believe he can do something, but I'm still grumbling in the moment. Turns out I was right. He can do something. Stand up, peace, be still. Hmm. We act like God either doesn't exist and that's why he doesn't have rights or he created us and he stepped away. We call this deism. God's not actively involved in the world anymore. So he has no rights as creator. That's not how the patent office works in the U.S. Here's the next step I want to challenge you to, foundation and guests. If you must, and no, you don't have to, if you must listen to one hour of the news, listen to God for three hours afterward. If you must listen to one hour of the news, Listen to God for three hours afterward. The news, we know the rules of the news. First rule, if it bleeds, it leads. Second rule, find a market niche and tell that group of people exactly what they want to hear until they get whipped up into a religious zeal that the other side is the enemy instead of Satan being the enemy. 
Satan, sin, and death are the enemy. I'm gonna keep saying it on repeat because I've got one hour to push back against all the nonsense that we're all taking in. Satan, sin, and death are defeated. Read the last book. That's the greatest news ever told. And their death was proclaimed on a cross 2,000 years ago. Brothers and sisters, be careful, not just the news, be careful what you listen to and listen to the narrative down beneath. Every narrative, every book, every show on Netflix, I promise you, look for it. There is always a, there's a problem, there is a Messiah, there's an anti-Messiah, and there is a resolution. Every story. It's just that on the news, the Messiah is your political party, the anti-Messiah is the other political party. It's all a lie. It's all a lie. Jesus has been replaced, Satan has been replaced, the Bible has been replaced by the evening news, and it is a false religion. I could give other examples. But we're talking about world leaders right now, so I'm talking about the news. Right now, we have no matter which news you listen to, we have both sides willing to flame uh, the, the fear of Vladimir Putin, what is Russia going to do next, blah, blah, blah. Oh my gosh. Ah! And the book says, I made something out of clay. I didn't like the decisions he made. I'll unmake him. That's what the book says. In a book designed to give hope, he says, I can crush the greatest human authorities. I can crush them, and I will, in my timing. Third, the future is God's turf. The future is God's turf. Um, this, there are a number of verses. I'm not going to read them and go through, but at the end of verse uh, chapter 7 and throughout a few spots in chapter uh, 18, again, we see Daniel be stressed out, like breaking out into a sweat, passing out on the floor. He is completely, deeply overwhelmed that he's receiving a vision, but the magnitude, the, the gravity of the horrible things that, that are being prophesied, he is deeply overwhelmed by this because it's not his to bear. He is being shown so that he could write it down and build up the faith of God's people. This is all about faith construction. So I want you to imagine uh, 1989. Greg is four years old. We're living in Napa, California. And I am sitting there, and during an episode of Sesame Street, I stop and think to myself, self, I wonder how dad's retirement account is doing. No, 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 I'm serious because, uh, you know, market volatility, the yen isn't strong against the dollar right now, and so I don't think his Asia-Pacific fund is going to do very well. And that's more than 20% of his portfolio. Do, do, do four-year-olds have those concerns? Yes, multi-generational church. We're doing it, guys, we're doing it. Guys, the future is God's turf. And if you are in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and you're working on your retirement, awesome. That's not your four-year-old's problem. It is too big for them. Your four-year-old granddaughter, not her problem. 
It is too big for her. One day, she might be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, but right now she's four. It's not hers. Next step, find hope in God's power alone. Find hope in God's power alone. I'm running long, so I'll say say this really fast. If you're exploring faith, here's what I want to encourage you toward. The ultimate way to find hope in God's power alone, if you are not a Christian, is to look at the cross and say, sign me up. I trust that Jesus on that cross had the power and the desire to wash away my sins, and I'm gonna trust only in that cross. That's how a non-Christian trusts in God's power alone. I'm not gonna trust on my good works any longer. I'm not doing this anymore. If you love Jesus already, you still, we still have to every single day make the choice to trust God's power alone. So my question to you is, what fear, we sing a song with this exact phrase, every fear I lay at your feet, God, the battle belongs to you. How will my kids turn out? What will my health be like a few months from now or a few years from now? Will I be able to retire? Will I ever get married? Will I ever get this dream job that I've been working toward for a decade already? Is it ever gonna happen for me? Brothers and sisters, the future is God's turf. If we put our hope in God's power alone, everything that is secondary can stay secondary. Yes, it's big, it's just secondary. Allow me to pray for us. God, I have concern that finding out Antiochus Epiphanes and Alexander the Great can be raised up and then allowed to rule for a short time and then crushed. I'm concerned, God, that to us that might be academic and theoretical. So I ask your Holy Spirit right now for one gift. Convince us that you are truly on your throne. Convince us in our bones. And God, when our faith wavers, would you please lead us to pray to you, to open your word, and to reach out to the family of faith. In the precious name of Jesus, who was, who is, and who will always be, we pray. Amen.